Thrive Leadership Podcast in three, two, cue music. This is the Thrive Leadership Podcast. Podcast. It's a place to connect you to nationally acclaimed leaders, their insights, and ideas on how to help you thrive in every area of your life. 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 On today's episode, John Ortberg. At a meeting when somebody says, my name is John, I'm an alcoholic, it involves a very concrete step because if they're going to that meeting, they're not drinking. And church does not do that. And the word to say, my name is John, I'm a sinner, doesn't require that same journey. We have no word like that. Now your hosts, Brad Lominick and CJ Alvarado. Welcome back to the Thrive Leadership Podcast. This is the place where we're going to inspire you towards greatness. Woo! That's our goal. Man, you're coming in hot. We want you to be great. Yes, we don't want we you to do. be just good. We don't want you to be average. We want you to be above average. That's we don't right. want you to be an ordinary leader. Mm. We want you to be an extraordinary extra leader. So thanks for being a part of this journey with us. CJ Alvarado, Brad Lominick, we're here with you for the next few minutes. Take you on this journey. That's right. What are you excited about right now in life, CJ? In life? Yeah, just in life in general. I know you that's know a big question. Brad, I'm just at a place where I'm content. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a really exciting time. Okay. Regardless of what's going on, being grateful for what's around me, having life, having the ability to create, it doesn't need to be any more than that for me right now. I like that. Yeah. I'm excited about uh, playing golf in Colorado Springs. Wow. At the Broadmoor. The How Broadmoor. I just threw something specific at you. No, you I know exactly where for. the Broadmoor is. Yeah, the Broadmoor. It's one of my favorite place. One of my favorite golf courses in all the country. You can hit the ball a country mile up there okay. because the air is thin. Yes. So the driver gets pulled out on every hole, regardless of whether it's par three of 112 yards or, right. or par five of 600 yards. I'm hitting my driver on every hole Yeah. because I want to just be the beast you wanna... that can hit the long ball. Because <laughs> when you're in Colorado Springs, the ball goes further. You get that extra sense of satisfaction. Yeah, you feel that like you're Bubba Watson right. standing up there. You get a good view, too. You've got Pikes Peak and NORAD right there, right? Am- amazing views. Yeah. By the way, speaking of NORAD, yeah. we're going to get to John Orberg here in just a few seconds. Not that John Orberg has anything to do with NORAD. No. But there's a great article that I recently read that is from an excerpt of a book that I'm not sure who the author is, but he goes into NORAD and sort of tells all, but not, doesn't tell all. And it's this fascinating sort of look back at the Cold War mm-hmm. and how NORAD is still functional. It still works. It still exists. You, you There's still... You know, the North American Strategic Air Defense System is all housed out of there. Right. In the mountains, Cheyenne Mountain, which is right behind the Broadmoor, just to the south of Pikes Peak. Right. So if you're driving through Colorado Springs, the way you can tell where NORAD is, is look at Pikes Peak, then look to the left, and there'll be all these antennas. Right. And they're all lit up, especially at night. That is NORAD. Right. Underneath millions of pounds of granite and the mountain yes. is a city. That is true. I have a NORAD story. I have a friend that lived in the Broadmoor. I stayed with him for a week. I went for a hike up that way. I didn't know much about NORAD. In fact, at that time, it was hard to believe that it was a massive like military and government thing there. Right? People were like, we're launching missiles from this place. We can right. run the whole nation from NORAD yeah. or whatever. I'm hiking up there. I started getting a little bit too close. All of a sudden, an armed guard just like appeared out of the distance. Because when you're hiking up there, it's not like there's big front doors. There's a big obvious thing. Is there a fence or any kind of sign? Yeah, there's a fence, you know, down the road. But it it doesn't feel like there's a massive complex. Like you said, it's in the mountain. Right. But it just waked me up. So I ran down the hill. But what did the armed guard do? He didn't have to do anything. He just was there with a machine gun. Was he standing there? He was just, yeah, he just kind of, you know, manning a particular 
perimeter. So but I he, think he came out of somewhere because just because he saw you. That was what I. Did he have radar lock on you? Like they must have lock? had radar lock on me. Yeah, I guarantee you they were watching you. Yeah, somebody was watching you somebody somewhere, and they said, me. "Hey." We got a shifty fellow. That's right. That's uh, moseying up the old hiking trail here. Right. That looks suspicious. <laughs> Somebody needs to get out there with the rubber bullets and fire one at his, right. at, his at his noggin and see what happens. Exactly. Anyway, beautiful place, man. It really Love is. It. Yeah, yeah. Loved it out there. Right, one of the things on my bucket list, which it's way down the list. It's like number forty-nine out of fifty. All right. But it is to go and do a tour and go inside of NORAD. Are they letting people in now? Huh. Yeah, I mean, somewhere. you got to know people. Well, I feel like i got connections somewhere that can do. get me into the old NORAD. That's right. North American Strategic Air Defense System. <laughs> yeah. So, speaking of defending our country, John Ortberg yes. is a leader that helps you defend your soul. That was great, Brad. He's on offense and he's on defense as it relates to your soul, to your heart, to your discipleship, to following Jesus. Yeah. And so many of you all already know who John Ortberg is because you've probably read one of his books mm-hmm. at some point. He's written so many of the, I would say, the classics yes. of Christian living. He is uh, the pastor of Menlo Church, which is in Menlo Park, California. Been there for many years. Before that, he was at Willow, mm-hmm. a small little church outside of Chicago. Tiny church, yeah. Yeah. And, and John Orberg is one of the great teachers of our generation, great Bible teachers. And he's also just a great guy. He's an amazing guy. He's leading a church and a team in one of the most influential regions in the world, too. Yeah, I mean, you know a, this. You you live out here. Your wife went to Stanford, which is in Menlo Park. Yeah. I and mean, you know that area and how influential that part of the country and part of California is. Right. I mean, John certainly doesn't, you know, use this, at least in just conversation. But, I mean, people don't realize you've got Google right down the street from him. He's literally got Apple a few blocks away from his campus. I mean, right. this is right in the heart of that. And so leading... I've always appreciated and respected the way Menlo uh, just leads and influences in that community because they do it with such grace and uh, skill. So great guy. I'm really excited we've got him on this podcast. And you got Condi sitting in your congregation. You got got the the former Secretary of State, former head of the National Security Council, a legend, Condoleezza Rice. I would be incredibly intimidated if I had to teach every week with her sitting there taking notes or not taking notes, looking at me like, who is this clown? (laughs) That's that's what that would be my thought if I was if I was having to sit in front of Condoleezza Rice. Right, she's dozing off, nodding off. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and he's got many of those other people that you may not know, but you would oh, know. Oh yeah, absolutely. And one of the things in this interview you're going to hear is recently John has really discovered because of some family stuff mm-hmm. the power of AA, and so this is a fascinating conversation, and one that all of us need to be really, really aware of as it relates to how do we look at AA from the church side? Because he gets into some of the history, which I didn't even realize. I didn't either. And how AA was started and the connection points, but he's been walking through this because he wanted to learn about it. Anyway, I'll tease that enough just to set it up, but that's one of the things out of this conversation that was we didn't expect, but it was a really, really good surprise to be able to dive into that. So here is the pastor of Menlo, best-selling author of numerous books and just a great all-around guy, Pastor John Ortberg. There's a passage in the New Testament that I love where uh, John says, see, I have set before you an open door no one can close. So that whole idea of um, what does it mean to have an open door that God has set before you and how do you walk through it? How do you recognize open doors? What do you do if you go through the wrong one? Just that it's really about how do I know God's will for my life? You got a few things to say about that issue. Well, um... 
It was a real confusing one for me. I grew up in the church and always had this idea that um, on the big decisions, uh, if you just pray and ask God, he will tell you his will for your life. And um, then when I was finishing up school, I, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I was thinking about going to the church, thinking about psychology. And so I would just pray and say, God, what do you want me to do? And I didn't get any response at all. It was very frustrating. It was just like, God, this is your job to tell me what to do. I don't care what it is. You just tell me what to do. Send me the postcard. Uh, and it took a long time to realize. And actually, a book by a good friend, Dallas Willard, on the topic Hearing God, it's called Hearing God, was super helpful. And part of what he said was, um, God's primary will is for you to become an excellent person. And if that's your will for somebody, then very often you have to let them make choices. Parents know this. If you're mm -hmm. raising kids and you always tell them, do this, take this class, date this person, it might be, feel good if you're a parent, um, but you would not actually raise a child who's a really good person. So that decision-making is an indispensable part of people-producing. And uh, I'd never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. I just thought God's supposed to tell me what to do. And really, I didn't so much want God's will for my life. I just wanted to avoid the anxiety of having to make a difficult decision. And wow. I think a lot of Christians are just, just like, I want to know God's will, but really, I want guaranteed success, and I don't want to have the anxiety of having to make a decision. And so that idea that uh, if God has something for you to do, he's perfectly capable of letting you know, and he can use a book, a thought, a conversation, but very often his will for you will be, I want you to choose. And nobody told me that when I was growing up in mm -hmm. church. I never heard the will of God talked about that way. Yeah, well, so, it seems like the will of God and your will... In the context of that conversation, mm -hmm. it seems very, I don't know, it, just, it, it seems like a conflict. So it's very interesting to hear you kind of position it that way. Well, and again, it's a lot like, you know, I've got three kids and they're all grown up now. And there are times when it sounded great to me to say, you know, just have them do whatever I tell them to do. But if they're in the backyard playing, my will is for them to be in the backyard playing and my will is for them to know that I'm with them. But I don't want to choose the games for them. I want to let them choose those games. So my will for them actually is I want you to choose. Because if people don't go through the experience of making choices, making decisions, with all of the, you have to learn, you have to ask questions, you have to do research, you have to live with the consequences, you have to take responsibility, you grow through the process of making decisions in ways that you would never grow if you don't have to make decisions. But again, I just think in a lot of ways, what really hurts us with God isn't the stuff we don't know, it's the stuff we think we know that we're wrong about. <laughs> And the will of God is one of those topics where so many people, they just think it's God's job to tell me what to do. And right. if I made a difficult decision, then I'll pray and ask. And if I don't hear something, then I've done something. And it was really confusing for me because I was going to become a pastor. And in my tradition, if you were going to be a pastor, you had to get a quote-unquote call. And that wasn't true for other jobs. People could you know, become a dentist mm -hmm. or a butcher, mm -hmm. and they didn't have to get a call. And they love Jesus, but pastors were supposed to get a call. And I never got a call. I was like, the best I could discern it, it was just up to me to choose what I would do with my life. And again, in my tradition, when it was time to get ordained, which is a part of like the credentialing of a pastor, that was one of the questions of, tell us about your call. And so to say, well, I think that I have a calling to do this, and I certainly am called by God to love Jesus and become a good person. But I never had some experience where it said, vocationally, a church has to sign my checks as opposed to doing something else. And that did not go down well with the people that I was <laughs> right. seeking to have my call affirmed by. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk about the reality of pastoring in Menlo Park. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. which for those who don't know is a hotbed for technology. It's mm-hmm. it's a, the center point in many ways of Silicon Valley. You are around a lot of people who have incredible influence and also are creating things that are now driving change and, mm-hmm. and innovation. Yeah. Just give us an insider's perspective on that reality. Well, for one thing, it's humbling to be the dumbest guy in the room all the time. <laughs> uh, and just to recognize, like, one of my jobs is just to try to avoid saying dumb stuff. And almost any subject that I'm talking about, economics or social sciences or anything other than or including, you know, exegesis and spiritual life is stuff that there's people sitting out there that know way more than I do. Mm. And so I have to caveat stuff all the time. <laughs> Lots of you know way more about this than I do. I have a friend that lives in Orange County, and he was, he was saying in Orange County, everybody wants to be the most beautiful. And it, where I live, everybody wants to be the smartest. Mm. And part of what that means is there's just, there's an intense performance culture. And so I think people live under enormous pressure. So on the one hand, it's a very exciting place to live. Developmentally, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, ethnic diversity is tremendous, and that's very, very exciting and really cool to get to watch and learn from. Um, so I love learning there. But everybody wants to um, create a startup and drive a Tesla and save the environment. Mm. And so you have a lot of creativity, but about an inch beneath the surface, uh, there's addiction issues, there's emotional health issues. Nobody moves to the Bay Area for a relationship. Everybody wow. moves out there for opportunity. Everybody moves out for uh, a chance to become a success. You know, People are paying $1,000 a month to rent a bed in San Francisco, not even a room, a bed. There was a 1,000 square foot house that got listed in Palo Alto last month for $2.2 million. Hello. Gosh. And it got sold for $2.55 oh. million. <laughs> so, you know, housing, financial pressures, that stuff's crazy. And for a church to be a place to say, anybody can come here and uh, you don't have to perform, there's a huge hunger for that. So it's, just, it's a really interesting combination of, uh, I think it's a place where you really need to speak to people's minds. And in a lot of places, I think people tend to be reached through churches by uh, emotions or by a certain kind of musical experience or something. In the Bay Area, for a lot of people, it's really, if God's going to reach them, it's through the mind and then through um, making a difference in the culture around issues of poverty and homelessness and so. And so you'll lean your teaching, Mm -hmm. the the series, the scripture, I mean, all of your standing up and leading people from that perspective towards that end. Yes, I'll think a lot and talk with folks a lot about what are people reading, what are people listening to, what are people thinking about, what are they talking about, what are the issues that people are concerned about, how do we address those. So when I was in Chicago at Willow Creek, it was a little different. It it tended to be focused more on kind of story, life change, more practical, and that certainly is very much a part of what we're doing at Menlo, but it's a little different ecosystem and so to address what it is that people are talking and thinking about is just part of the mission work there. One of the people that you mentioned, Dallas Willard, you, you've been deeply impacted by him, mm-hmm. and you're part of the board and the, the group that has created the Dallas Willard Center. Yes. Um, talk about some of that work, because I know that's a deep part of your passion at this stage of life and some of the things you're giving a lot of energy and time to. I was just with... Uh, a couple last week who they have a two-year-old son, and they were introducing me, and they named him Dallas hmm. after Dallas Willard. 
he was a guy of disproportionate impact because he was a, a wonderful thinker, a philosopher at University of Southern California, but his heart was better than his mind and he just lived in the reality of the kingdom in remarkable ways. There's a center, it's associated with Westmont College in Santa Barbara, and if you're gonna do spiritual formation, Santa Barbara's not a bad place to do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a yeah. good place to go get formed. Yeah. And a fellow named Gary Moon is the executive director of it. And it's called the Dallas Willard Center, but it's really not about Dallas. I think for anybody who's interested in that, uh, for me, when I went to school, I, I went to get a degree in theology, but also in clinical psychology, because that question of how do people change and why is change so hard? And how does faith fit into that? And I grew up in the church, but why is it that people in churches, although they may affirm the creed and they might avoid adultery or drunkenness a little less often than people outside the church or hide it better, but why does it not produce people who are more joyful and more loving and more honest? All those questions seem like the most interesting ones. And it was really by coming into contact with Dallas's work and person, that it was like it opened doors to worlds of wisdom about how spiritual change happens and how power becomes available to people that for whatever reason, I in my tradition had just not known about. Hmm. I grew up in the church and I'm very, very grateful for, but when it came to change about all I knew was you're supposed to read the Bible regularly and pray regularly and go to church and avoid these certain sins. But finding a way of life that could be a conduit for uh, spiritual power and freedom from the sins that just uh, choke you to death, I did not know about. So um, devoting a lot of time and thought and energy to continuing that, how do we help the church in our day discover a way of Jesus through which genuine transformation can happen? I love to be a part of that. And I'm actually thinking a lot right now and working real deeply in kind of AA communities in the 12 steps. Mm. Interesting. Talk, I mean, yeah, dive into that a little bit more. So Dallas often used to write about if a church gets discipleship right, it will look a lot like AA. And so I'd always kind of been aware of that. And then a couple of things happened. One of our three kids got into AA uh, three and a half years ago. And watching the change in her life was really remarkable. And seeing how a spiritual way of life that wasn't legalistic or mechanical, but was very concrete and really made a difference. That was huge. And uh, then another friend of mine that I've known for a long time, who's been in uh, AA for several decades, was asking, why is it that Dallas would write about that, but nobody seems to do much with it? So I decided I would start going to um, AA meetings and working through the 12 steps. It's just been fascinating. Hmm. And this friend of mine said, I predict before you get real far into the journey, you will be jealous that you're not an alcoholic. And I, I really understand what he meant. So I've been doing that for quite a few months. I'm on step four, which is when you do a fearless and searching moral inventory. It's kicking my ass. Can I say the word ass? <laughs> sure. Yes, you, you can't. We'll just, we'll just <laughs> I, can, I can just put it into step four. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Confess that one. I love it. Uh, and it's really interesting when you go to um, meetings, the whole program, 12 steps, and then the infrastructure around it was a gift from the church to alcoholics. As you might know, it actually began with a group who originally called themselves a first-century Christian fellowship. Hmm. It's a guy named Frank Buckman, who's a Lutheran pastor, and he was trying to find how do we recapture the way of life that they followed in the early church. 
And so quite intense fellowship, quite intense self-examination, frighteningly transparent confession to other people, service to other folks. Uh, it was initially called a first century Christian fellowship. It got renamed the Oxford Group. And then one day this guy, Bill W., was brought to an Oxford Group meeting. And he found that as he practiced that way of life, it brought the power for sobriety to him. And for the next several years, 30 or 40 alcoholics were simply part of the Oxford group, mm. and they did what the Oxford group did to follow Jesus. And then eventually, for a variety of reasons, that spun off into AA, and he codified the 12 steps. But that whole way of life uh, flowed directly wow. from followers of Jesus who were trying to find what we talk about as discipleship. So now the question is, it's like there's been this great gift to the community of alcoholics from the church. Can the church receive that gift back again? Sure. Wow. But there's a lot of challenges around it. At a meeting when somebody says, my name is John, I'm an alcoholic, they have been on a journey before they can say that sentence where they, they have to experience great humiliation, they have to surrender. It involves a very concrete step because if they're going to that meeting, they're not drinking. And church does not do that. And the word mm -hmm. to say, my name is John, I'm a sinner, doesn't produce that same effect. It doesn't require that same journey. We have no word like that. And I think the greatest problem in the church in our day, particularly in cultures that have been impacted a lot by the church, is there's no way of life that is so distinct and so intense that it brings with it the power to change. Now, in Jesus' day, it did, just to follow Jesus. You knew if you were doing that or not. And then the Acts 2 church, that was so radically different than other people. And then it affected the culture, and by Constantine, everybody in the Roman Empire is a Christian. And there's no accident. That's when people started going off into the desert, and monastic movement started, hmm. because they said there's got to be a way of life that's got hmm. power, but it's no longer available in the church generally. And that's part of what's happened in the community of alcoholics, and it's just this great picture of God's, the, the truth that my strength is made perfect in weakness. Alcoholism, which is this tragic burden, is this tremendous gift because there is a way of life uh, that can bring you freedom and sobriety, but if you get slack with it, you'll drink and die in its hell. If you get self-righteous and legalistic with it, you'll drink and die in its hell. So it creates the kind of governor yeah. that keeps that community on the narrow path, and the church doesn't have that. And at the end of every AA meeting, people join hands, they'll pray the serenity prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and then say, keep coming back, it works. And there's no arrogance in that, they just know, as a matter of fact, if I work this program, I'll receive the power to stay sober, if I don't, I will die. And in the church, we really, for the most part, cannot now say, keep coming back, it works. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. So lots of thoughts around that. There's a little saying often in AA 12-step groups often meet in church basements. Yeah. And they will sometimes say, you can come downstairs and change or go upstairs and stay the same. Wow. And I'll think, you know, for the church, we'll talk these days about how Jesus announced the arrival of the kingdom of heaven through himself. So we want to make up there come down here. But then when you think about A, we want to make down there come up here. We've got to bring the basement up to the mm. sanctuary. Mm. and create places where there's that level of, where, where the recognition and public confession of inadequacy is celebrated. 
And that's what happens all the time in AA, the recognition and public confession of inadequacy. You know, where to go? And in the church, partly because we extol spiritual maturity, we tend not to celebrate the admission of weakness. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what kills the power of the church. It yeah. seems like doing that in general is tough. Doing yeah. that in a place like the Bay Area with the dynamics you mentioned earlier seems maybe impossible. Oh, but you, you, you said you're in step four of that program. But mm-hmm. are you seeing any insights of how that transition happens? You got any hunches or ideas about how that could look? Well, I'm thinking about it a lot and thinking about it with a team of folks. And, and we're trying to talk about how would we go about translating it. Again, it's so interesting how all of the components of AA were a part of that Oxford group previously sharing. What they called sharing uh, was a big part of their culture. And that meant telling stories about their lives apart from God and then the difference that God made. Yeah. So confession, ongoing confession of real-time character defects was a huge part there. It's a huge part in AA. I think in the church, we have to recapture that. So part of what we're talking about is even in our services, how could every week we find ways to tell stories? Not about how, yeah, I sinned once 30 years ago. Mm-hmm but now my family and life are perfect. But actually, I'm struggling. When I came in today, I messed mm-hmm. up with this. So I think a culture of transparency, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. I'd never thought about this before. For the first time, I understand why that weird story about Ananias and Sapphira is in the book of Acts. You know, that's the one where they sell a field, they keep some money back, and they both die. And it's like, it just looks like Peter's really mean to him, and <laughs> right. God's really yeah. mean. He's like, man... Yeah. Um, <laughs> But when you think about the early church, it was a place of great power because people were fully transparent. With Jesus, the disciples, all their flaws were right there. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's not about greed. It's the first time in that new community that there's a story of people hiding and pretending to be more spiritual than they were. Mm. And that's what kills the power of spiritual community. And that's why, it's like for the first time, now I see why that story is in there and why it looks so strange. So I think that's a big part of it. I think we'll have to start with people that are really hungry and intensely motivated rather than trying to impose it on a whole congregation at once. Yeah. Again, with AA, Dallas would often talk about uh, the importance of vision and then intention and then method. If you know that alcohol is going to kill you, uh, you get a vision. And mm-hmm. then if sobriety becomes possible... And for most of us in the church, there's simply not a vision that's authentically intense enough. We know we're supposed to want Jesus. We think maybe we should, but we don't want it with the desperation that somebody who knows that alcohol is going to kill them wants sobriety. And so I think it will probably have to start with a small group of people where the motivation is that intense. Um, I think it's going to take a lifetime journey. I think a lot of times we think of discipleship as a program that you can put people through and We'll talk about discipling people, and I think it will involve a way of life like the 12 steps that are never done. Mm-hmm. And some of them, it's not rocket science, intense fellowship, examination, deep confession, serving other people, those will have to be key components of it. Some of it we're going to have to learn about. It's very interesting with AA. When you meet in a small group, it has a very clear focus. You're reading the big book together, or you're hearing a story. And then everybody just talks about this is how it impacts my life or this is where I've messed up and it speaks to me. Nobody's saying, 
I don't like that passage, or I wonder what this passage means, or <laughs> let me tell you about a problem I'm having at work. It's a very clear part of a larger way of life. And if you go to a meeting, it will point you back to the 12 steps. And the 12 steps will point you to the need for a meeting. And then there'll be parts of work in the steps that you don't know how to do. And so you get a sponsor. In the church, we might call that discipling, mm-hmm. or we might call that a spiritual director, yeah. depending on if you're Baptist or Episcopalian. <laughs> um, but that's what a sponsor is. But the thing with a sponsor is, like I asked my daughter to start doing that with me, and so she said, okay, get the big book, read pages 66 to 68 every day, do the morning exercise every morning, do the evening exercise every evening, and every day do an act of service that's like custodial as a part of your recovery. And I realized that's spiritual direction. Mm. Only in AA... There's such a clear body of what it is. And it's not just general guru wisdom. It's how do you do the steps? And everybody is going to be sponsors for other folks. And the reason that you become a sponsor isn't primarily to help other people. It's because you cannot stay sober yourself if you're not giving it away. So there's so many of those dynamics where it's like in the church, we try to get people to serve because other people need them. But that's not actually the way that it works. The way that it works is I have to give or I can't keep it. So Mm. I think some aspects of it can translate in pretty straightforward ways. And then other ways, God will have to break through in ways that I don't yet know how it will happen. But I do think anytime there's been a great transforming movement from Jesus to the Acts Church to the beginning of these monastic communities to house churches in China to Wesleyan revival to Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together, that little group that he had in Nazi Germany, you find a group of people who discover a way of life. And again, it's not mechanical and it's not legalistic, but it's very concrete and they know if they're doing it or not. And they understand it's making possible a life that would not be possible apart from it. And I I do think that's the great need in churches. And so just thinking about how can we experiment with that? What can it look like is a really... That's kind of the front burner topic for me these days. And are you writing anything right now? Or you got a project in the, in the um, works? I have a book that's coming out, and uh, it's really about intimacy with people and intimacy with God. Uh, it's called I'd Like You More If You Were More Like Me. That's a classic Ortberg title <laughs> right, right there. Exactly. It's a classic <laughs> Ortberg title right there. The challenge in connecting with people is just differences. You're sure. different, and so yeah. I think you're weird. And uh, But it really is about intimacy as shared experience and how is it possible to be deeply connected with other people and deeply connected with God. Hmm. What are you doing to just have some fun these days? Actually, honestly, I just had a birthday, and so this week has been probably the most fun week I've ever had. My, my wife decided to surprise me, so our staff had this huge surprise birthday party. I came walking in. They were all dressed in 70s clothes. and <laughs> There you go. There it you was go. like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> that was just a blast. My mom and dad had flown in, and then my sister came the next day, and then my brother came the next day, and it was just like one surprise after another. So this is a really, really, really fun week. I surf. I don't surf well, but I like doing it. Nancy does it. So um, I played golf with my dad yesterday. And again, I'm not a good golfer, but if you hit a good golf shot, I get uh-huh. yeah, one. Really, really you get great, one in right? there, you're, 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 you're coming back. That's exactly right. So I like doing that. I love to hike. I love to read. So just finding interesting stuff to read is always super fun. Yeah. yeah. Anything on your nightstand that you would well, recommend to... This is going to sound weird to people, but I just finished reading uh, Brothers Karamazov. Hmm. And the spiritual wisdom, the thoughts in there... He, he, Dostoevsky has this one whole theme 
because he himself uh, was a very devout follower of Jesus in some kind of unorthodox ways, but, but very devoutly Christian. But there's one thought that gets teased out throughout the book that without God, everything is permitted. That's just posing the question, if there is no God and there is no moral structure to the universe, is it possible to derive any kind of framework for morality or goodness that people have to follow? And so you have that on the one hand, and then you have these other characters who are overwhelmed by the love of God, and the primary expression of it is a joyful embrace of life. And there's one chapter in it, it's called The Wedding of Cana, and it's kind of the turning point in the journey of the guy who's the hero, the Dostoevsky says is the hero of the book, and it comes when he's listening to the story of the wedding at Cana being read. And what melts his heart is the thought that Jesus came not just to share our sorrows on a cross, but to share our joys by creating wine at a wedding. And that if God is that good, how could there be anything better than knowing and loving that God? So anyway, that's, I don't know if anybody will read the book based on that. But, <laughs> I'm going to um, go get it. <laughs> uh, to um, just read it real slowly, not be in a hurry of it. And I would write down the names of all the characters because these stupid Russian names are like 18 <laughs> syllables right. long and they don't have a vowel in them. Yeah. So I just wrote them down and what page they were on and took it real slow. And it was really fun. Thanks for stopping by for a chat with CJ and I. This was CJ, fun. thank you. Yeah. Brad, you look marvelous. Oh. <laughs> marvelous. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Marvelous. What an amazing interview. Love John's heart. Yeah. I love how out of the box he's willing to be by just going through the actual AA program. Right. I feel like we could have kept talking about surfing because they got you motivated over there in your, in your yeah, chair. You know, I just, I didn't know that about him. And I love that he's, he's well, out there You don't there think surfing. of him as a surfer. You don't. And he and Nancy both are, I don't think they would say they're expert surfers, but I think they get along pretty well to the point where they enjoy it. You know, surfers, they've got that vibe about him. And now that I know he surfs, I could see that. He's hes laid back. And Is there a language that you would have used with as a surfer? <laughs> just gone in a surfer yeah, mode? Yeah, like what's the surfer lingo? Do you just you know. say hang loose all the time? No, and man. It's like not do that your way. fingers no, in the uh, whatever that is. That, the, was, that was like very 80s. Remember that huh? one? The, the hang yeah, loose. Yeah. Hang loose. Yeah, no, no, no lingo. There's no lingo? No lingo. It's just, it's more of a well, you lifestyle, did, You did Brad. say like, I mean, you said this after we hit the stop button. You said longboard or shortboard. I did. And I had no idea what you were talking about. Oh, he really? Said, he said longboard. He said longboard, yeah. He said longboard like that's the thing that should be expected. Is shortboard harder? or Shortboard, is yeah. It's harder. It's faster. It's just a different thing. In fact, what you would find generally is a total generalization. Overall, I think most surfers, they're, they're pretty chill. And longboarders are extra chill. Okay. I mean, when you're longboarding, you're just cruising. You know, right. you might do toes of the nose. You ever hear that concept? Oh, yeah. Toes of the nose. There's some lingo. Like, yeah. You're leaning back, just chilling, man. And where does paddleboard fit into the Paddleboard is a longboard. You know, it's just big, thicker, more buoyant, yeah. and not necessarily surfing. Right. You're standing. Yeah, you're standing. You've got the oar, obviously. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But surfers look down on paddleboarders? There's always those guys, but right. by and large, surfers are just out there. They're just hanging loose, man. Yeah, man, they're just chilling. Yeah. Yeah, no. It's like they're on a smoke break. Their whole life is a smoke the break. Whole life is... <laughs> that's, that's the way I look at it. Their whole life is just a big old smoke break. Right. No, but it's cool because he's hitting spots that surfers go, you know, yeah. so it is cool to just hear that. It's interesting that so many pastors on the West Coast, especially those that are close to the ocean, mm-hmm. whether in Southern California or Northern California, when you say, "Hey, what do you do for fun? What you know? What's sort of your margin, your Sabbath, your rest?" And they, and many of them are surfers. 
Because yeah. in Atlanta, obviously, we don't have anybody sure. surfing on Lake Lanier, north of Atlanta. Nobody's going up there and they're water skiing. Mm-hmm. But the surfing community feels like there's a lot of the church that is woven into the fabric of surf and obviously the beach. Yeah. Um, so that, that's just something I'm discovering the more I spend time out here on the West Coast. Well, that, surfing, man, you're not really in control. You know what I mean? You're yeah. just kind of waiting and you have to wait. That's part of it. You wait for your sets to roll in, you uh-huh. know, it's sets of waves and you have to respect something that's bigger and greater than you. I mean, now you got me going. Well, there's a whole sermon series right there. That's why pastors are out there. Maybe that's all. They're getting sermon series every time they go out in the water. Yeah. Oceans, songs are coming out of it. (laughs) Exactly. Thriveconverse.org is where you can hang out with us. Email us, podcast at thriveconverse.org. That's right. If you really want to find us on social, though, it's at Brad Lominick and at CJ Alvarado on most social sites. Another one in the can here. And John Orberg, every time he delivers. So thanks again to Dr. John Orberg. He's a friend. He's a great guy. And as always, we encourage you to continue to get healthy, continue to build a church that's thriving. Until next time, this is the Thrive Leadership Podcast. The Thrive Leadership Podcast is hosted by CJ Alvarado and Brad Lominick and is produced by Kip Johns. To download and share this and other Thrive podcasts, go to thriveconference.org.